Welcome to the Observatory. I'm Jessica Helfman. And I'm Michael Beirut. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. On each episode, we talk about a few topics that are on our minds and in the air. This episode is sponsored by the School of Visual Arts, a leader in the education of artists, designers, and creative professionals for more than six decades. To learn more, visit sva.edu. April is the cruelest month, so said T.S. Eliot. He had his own ideas about why that was, and he may not have been thinking about the 1st of April, otherwise known as April Fool's Day. That has become not just an occasion for private japes between friends, but some of your favorite brands now feel incumbent to come up with stunts on the 1st of April. They think they're delighting their customers, and in fact, they may not be having a the effect they hope. This year, uh, we have an example from Google of all people. Uh, but if uh, you were sending someone an email and you uh, pressed send and archive, what you were doing, and I think somehow you were told this, but a lot of people missed it, was you were actually appending a, uh, a GIF or a GIF, your call, that was showing uh, one of those minion figures dropping a mic insouciantly as one does to indicate, you know, that's all. I just said it. And that would go along with the email you just wrote. By the time the East Coast woke up, uh, Google had already disabled this effect. But it was too late. You know, people, people, I literally saw a tweet where someone had said something like, here's so-and-so, you know, I was so saddened to hear of the death of your grandfather. Um, please let us know if there's anything we can do to help. Mic drop. <laughs> No, no. And, and, and they were also like people like sending in job applications or kind of notes on performance reviews. You know, I see myself as being a thoughtful and professional uh, employee. And I always, um, you know, see that decorum is my main responsibility here in the organization. Mic drop. How about, you know, it's just kind of like, what? It's, it was so kooky. First of all, someone on The Verge re- referred to Minions as, quote, I quote, those irritating yellow monstrosities, which, you know, this is either a person born without a sense of humor or a person without children. But I'm a personally a huge fan of the Minions. I think the problem here is that it was an insidious move by Google to do this because, in fact, email is actually, you know, it's like life support, right? It is the way we archive our lives. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. no wonder that something happened, that, that, they, that they recalled this. Um, th- that said, I think that the minions come out completely fine. And I mean, of all the things they could have chosen to choose that, it, it's funny. It just, I think it's, you know, was bound to fail. I, I wouldn't have recognized that character as a minion because I don't know anything about no minions, right? So I didn't, I didn't, that was just a zany looking cartoon character. I had no further associations with it. So I was excluded from that part of the population, as I assume at least a few others were. Likewise, I think that despite um, the fact that memes circulate so quickly and so broadly, I bet there's still a lot of people who don't know what mic drop means. And I'm not even sure that my kids would say I fully understand what it means. I'm not sure um, I know what it means. <laughs> so it's sort of Could you um, explain it to me, please, Michael? Well, it's sort of like, um, you know, I guess like, you know, um, rap musicians, as they're concluding some particularly um, decisive part of their rap rhyming thing, 
uh, will just sort of like indicate that, you know, game over, I won. You just drop the mic, exit the stage, and foreclose any further conversation. If you actually think about what I just said and think that that was appended to all sorts of email, um, very few of which would have actually warranted that sort of conclusive and uh, contemptuous ending, uh, you can sort of see why people found this thing so unnerving. Corporations may be people too, as um, as a former presidential candidate once said, but not everyone has a sense of humor, and corporations are less likely to have a sense of humor. So a few years ago, Google introduced, uh, also around April Fool's Day, a rebrand of Gmail called Gmail Blue. Uh, the big idea was that it was blue. Now, I teach a course on the color blue, and I show this every year, and it is just so brilliantly spoofing themselves and the seriousness and the mock seriousness of people, you know, moving a pixel to the left and thinking that they've just cured cancer. Uh, But the idea that we've all become uh, fascinated with branding as the kind of national pastime, what did you think of Virgin America's rebrand print? What's funny about it was, uh, um, as some of our listeners may know, Virgin America um, announced a rebranding and I did it in such a deadpan way that I suspect even it was forwarded to me by two different people, neither of whom were reading it immediately as a joke. And you sort of had to really poke at it to kind of like assure yourself that no, they weren't changing the Virgin America logo to look like what what it looked like, um, to me at least, the bikini top of a very, very well-endowed woman. And they had a, um, they had a sketch of, um, of the designers kind of regarding uh, a, um, a pinup board filled with alternatives. And that was sort of the, the tell because um, all the alternatives were like, that was the least of them. There were alternatives that literally looked like erect penises that they were kind of thinking, well, not, you know, this one possibly, you know. And so, and, 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 and what was really perfect about it though was that the uh, triumphal tone of hubris that attended kind of this announcement was exactly like uh, what we've come to uh, expect from big companies uh, that are uh, unveiling logos and expect the world to be as uh, thrilled and impressed with the outcome of the process as the people in the uh, conference room who were signing the check for it. You know, it's very difficult to do anything online and have it convey the innuendo you wanted to. And in fact, we should perhaps be more surprised by the pranks that succeed. And in some ways, the ones that are really subtle to me, like, okay, my absolute favorite this year, Mark Zuckerberg at H&M. <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg clothing at H&M. What is it? T-shirts and jeans. It's all black and white. I mean, it is so subtle. It is so funny. And I looked and I thought, oh, please do not let this be real. Oh, oh, please do not. Have we really come this far? But in a way, for anybody who has a dystopian kind of, you know, naysayer view of technology, you got to hand it to people poking fun at themselves. Oh, here's another one I loved. I don't know if you, if you saw this one, Michael. John Stamos. No, I didn't, I didn't see this. I didn't say, what, what happened? So John Stamos does a thing with Netflix, the best part of which was, you've got John Stamos in his movie recommendations based on what he wanted. So the whole kind of algorithm from your last viewing pattern to this one was completely upended by some, you know, basically from our listeners who don't know who he is, this is an extremely handsome man in his early 50s who's as handsome as he was in his early 20s when he had some uh, notoriety and success by being on a television series. So his show, which was big in the 80s, called Full House, has now been brought back. It's called Fuller House. He remains, uh, you'll forgive me, not hard on the eyes, remarkably uh, lovely person to look at. But this was an extremely subtle play, right? So to me, 
Mark Zuckerberg and his T-shirts, John Stamos giving me recommendations on his own viewing patterns. Those are very funny. And then um, did you see um, about a week or so before uh, April Fool's a new website purporting to be the home of a new design firm called Blandly? Could you talk about Blandly? Because I thought that was the execution was just pitch perfect. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's a website from a um, strategy and design firm that manages to just efficiently and gracefully and hilariously touch on, refer to, check off the box for every single cliche that attends this whole world. And the, and sort of the, and the main underlying joke, they basically keep talking about how blanding is important and the new bland, you know, um, environment that um, every company has to work in. Just substituting the word bland for brand, accompanying <laughs> that with a lot of photographs of healthy, young, uh, millennial-looking people gesturing energetically at post-it notes in the foreground and then behind it partially obscured are the enthusiastic creators and makers kind of pointing at them and all in the um, service of helping um, bland development uh, uh, lead us towards a better blanded world and it just is great it's um, by a, uh, a firm in Baltimore called Post Typography who have always had a really good sense of humor but this is a almost like a perfect object. And uh, uh, it's also one of those things that a parody so vicious in a way, it actually kind of will put everyone on notice that you sort of can't do anything that might be mistaken for the Blandly website anymore. You know, and there may be at this moment a bunch of uh, firms going through their website and carefully extracting the turns of phrase that now have been rendered uh, toxic by the uh, precision of this parody. Uh, so well done, Post Typography and Blandly. Uh, check it out uh, while you can. It's all you really need for today's ever more blanded world. And now a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by the School of Visual Arts, a leader in the education of artists, designers, and creative professionals for more than six decades. With a faculty of distinguished working professionals, a dynamic curriculum, and an emphasis on critical thinking, SVA is a catalyst for innovation and social responsibility. With some 35,000 alumni across 100 countries, SVA also represents one of the most influential artistic communities in the world. To learn more, visit sva.edu. The one thing that um, really sets SVA apart is their ability to take um, fields of study, whether it's typography, the world of interaction design, product design, design for social causes, and recast them in a fresh way that really lets students define new territory, really. Because of the nature of the school, I feel like they're not hemmed in by uh, an academic model that's saying, you know, it has to be this, it can't be that, it has to fall within these uh, four walls. It's uh, interdisciplinary, and I would say it's transdisciplinary, and it's just an expansive view about what design with a capital D can do um, in uh, the 21st century. So when I see that uh, uh, sva.edu thing attached to someone's email address, it's almost always going to be someone very, very smart with a really a good question, a good answer, or just a good, something important to say. So um, highly recommend it. You know, if you are a practicing designer, 
you have a process, you have clients, you have, uh, you know, certain rules you follow uh, or rules you occasionally break, but other rules you must follow to, to stay afloat in a competitive world. On the other hand, in an industry in which you don't need to be certified to practice, as we've often said, uh, there are rules that do need to be at least, if not broken, then at least bent. And I think that to, to stay sort of grounded in the existing understanding of what your discipline requires, but to have one eye open or your mind always open to the possibility that the world is changing and you must change with it, is, I think, where schools tend to contribute the most to their students' education. So the students are getting at once a grounded education in the basics, but they're also being exposed to a changing and complex and interdisciplinary world. And I would even go so far as to say that people who look at their own practices in terms of embracing what is constant and what is variable are the people who sometimes are the most interesting to look at. And on that score, I wondered if you have seen this new book that Nicholas Felton has come out with, which is called PhotoViz. Now, this is a new book that looks at visualizing data. He is a data genius, right? This is a book about visualizing data using photographs. So PhotoViz looks at different techniques for conveying large or complex ideas in a single image, from slow exposures to panoramas to the averaging the traits of many different faces or selfies. But it's hardly a new phenomenon. It's really kind of an old technique. And Moybridge used the idea of multiple images. What's different now is that the volume of images out there in the world is just astonishing. Uh, I listened to a podcast recently. Uh, Radio Lab did a, did a podcast about a year ago, I think. I, I'm just catching up. Andrew Zoli was interviewed. And he mentioned a statistic that I thought was just staggering and worthy of, of interjecting here, which is that I think on Christmas Day in... 2012 or something, more photographs were uploaded to Facebook than the entire range of photographs that had ever been put on Flickr, right? And so think about this. It's unbelievable. So you talk about crowdsourcing with that material. So artists, and I would in this case call Felton an artist, artists and designers are starting to think about how they can take material like that and use it to make something else. And that is what he's done in this book. And some of the examples are really just marvelous. Yeah, it's really the upside of the democratization of the medium, right? There was a time, well, I mean, there was a time where uh, um, access to a camera and the ability to make images using photography was a, uh, you know, a complex operation that only technically proficient people could do, and they'd have to have the access to the right resources to do it. And, you know, and it, it was being done back then, and Moybridge is probably the leading example. But you use the word, you use the word operation, which is a, such a perfect word, right? So at an operational level, you needed chemicals, you needed money. You, you know, back in the 20s, people would, they use the word Kodak as a verb, you'd go Kodaking out with your friends, right? But you'd have to actually take the thing to the lab, get the prints. In the 50s, you had those little scalloped edge prints. Uh, but what these people are doing, like Felton and others, is, and some of the examples in this book, which uh, is, is out from Gestalt, and, uh, and we can put a link to it on our website, uh, are really quite beautiful. They're, they're people who are playing with exposures. They're people who are playing with time. Uh, one photographer took this remarkably beautiful image uh, of Paris, of uh, a view of buildings across the Seine, and sliced them together across a day. So you get this prismatic read of a single formal space 
through the lighting conditions that change across the course of a day. Anybody who watches House of Cards and knows that opening sequence knows that they've done the same thing in motion where you go across the city of Washington and you see the Capitol building and you see back alleys and it goes from light to dark. There's something about accelerating our understanding of time and space through some formal recognition of a photograph that's interesting. But it's an analytic approach uh, in a way that, that looks at time-lapse photographs, that looks at the idea of collage, that looks at the idea of the panorama, uh, and takes, uh, takes the visualization itself as uh, something that artists and, and photographers and designers, even I suppose typographers could do, that looks at the swath of possibilities by using not only your own work, but the sort of crowdsourced work from other people who are perhaps not as artistic as you are, but certainly as digitally literate as you are to be able to produce and upload uh, their own material. Yeah, and it's it's analytic, as you said, Jessica, but it's also, I think, um, you know, it's it goes back to, uh, you know, very old artistic impulses as well. And it reminds us that, uh, you know, the Impressionists and the Futurists and all these different art movements, a lot of them were attempts to sort of see the world anew and see the world in a clearer way and to recognize kind of the uh, ephemerality of the world or the acceleration of movement in the world. And, you know, it's, you know, it's, it takes no great leap to make a connection between, you know, New Descending a Staircase and Moybridge. They're all just really attempts to sort of somehow both evoke and celebrate and at the same time, you know, faithfully record in a new, more vivid way what, um, what this, you know, what this reality is. And there's something about the, uh, uh, what Felton actually acknowledges is um, uh, the disposability of the medium uh, that he actually celebrates. He thinks that uh, um, that having uh, you know images be more disposable means that they're inherently more uh, you know you can combine them more readily, you can manipulate them more readily, you can kind of you, you know they become data rather than individual um, uh, works of art, and uh, and just as data can be analyzed and crunched and mined, so can images, and I think that th- th- it's really a, a a very interesting way of looking at. Uh, um, our world through, uh, forgive me, through a new lens, and um, uh, and it's something that really you can you can see is just the first among uh, you know many sort of uh, volleys that will happen as uh, you know as the, the mass of images uh, uh, just continues piling up higher and higher and higher. Eventually, um, it'll just represent a resource that people will understand, you know, contains a lot more information than any one of the photographers or any intended or that any one of the images can provide. But it also, in this century, if you look at the computational awareness of people like Nicholas Felton and others, you have to have an understanding, I think, of what the screen does, of what a portal is, of what the relationship is between not only time and space, but math and art. And no one was more gifted at a kind of porous, graceful, magnificent, uh, experimental understanding of that line between the numerical and the visual 
and the sort of lived experience of what geometry could be in terms of a theatrical uh, moment for individuals uh, in her buildings than Zaha Hadid, who we lost last week at the age of 65. Uh, it was a great surprise um, and tragedy for the architectural community and really for the world community because she was a player on a stage uh, much larger than just architecture. She was, of course, uh, a very much a citizen of the world. There's many wonderful pieces, eulogies and remembrances written about her online. Um, John Seabrook wrote something in The New Yorker. My favorite, though, was written by Julie Lasky, um, who talked really about her not as a star architect, but as someone who broke every ceiling, right? She broke the glass ceiling. She broke, I mean, she broke the rules. She was a dramatic person with a great operatic manner. If you ever had the, the uh, opportunity to meet her, I only once saw her coming out of a car and she was, she was a diva, but she's just like, she was larger than life. Uh, and sometimes uh, those flames burn out too soon. That certainly was the case here. You sort of hit it exactly um when you position her as very much part of the conversation we were just having, you know, she became famous really for the drawings that supported a competition entry um, towards the beginning of her career uh, for a, I think it's a sports club in Hong Kong called The Peak. And she did these, she submitted these drawings that were so, they're very much like new descending a staircase, uh, so staggering in their um, density and complexity and daring. They were so close to the edge of not just what could be built, but what could even be conceived and understood, that she just was always out there on that line, which is kind of amazing. And what, in the, the John Seabrook profile, which I really recommend, um, he, he actually has her on the record saying something like, um, you know, I was drawing things that I couldn't even see, and then it's just amazing when you see the things that when to see the things in real life that I w- that I was drawing out of my own head, uh, you know, years ago, and just there are so few, few people that have the capacity to work that way. Um, in Rome, I um, I spent some time at a, at a museum here. She did called the Maxi, and uh, it has all the problems that you associate with star architects making museums. I mean, it's uh, complicated difficult spaces on the inside to work with. Famously, like, like I think, Liebeskin's uh, Holocaust uh, Memorial Museum in Berlin, uh, Zaha Hadid's Maxi opened to the public without any art in it at all, a frank admission that the museum itself was the first and foremost thing on exhibit there, the museum building. Currently, there are some great, really bold uh, uh, installations inside it and some great sprawling exhibitions inside it. But the one thing it does is it just challenges everything inside it and everyone inside it to kind of partake of this energy that is really palpable. You sort of perceive it as you kind of come at it from up the street. And once you're inside, even as you're being potentially disoriented or in, intentionally disoriented, you're really understanding that this is supposed to be resetting your expectations about what a museum is, what it, a building is, what an interior experience is. And so while you're in it, uh, it makes uh, 
you know, any reservations you have about uh, whether or not it's appropriate or sensible or professional or um, or anything else sort of seem beside the point. You know, you're just in there kind of uh, being energized by the spaces around you. And I think she was just great at that as a human being uh, and great at that as a, um, you know, as an architect and as a professional. Jessica, can you talk a little bit about um, what it means or doesn't mean that she was a woman in what remains a startlingly male profession? Well, there's certainly no shortage of great female architects in the world. Um, but she, I, th- I think because she was such an international person, uh, I think to grow up in Iraq, Julie Lasky mentions in her piece, I didn't know this about her, um, that she she really, she loved math as much as she loved design. And that as a child, she played with numbers, she played with spaces, she understood the world in a certain kind of way. And I, I, I do think it had to do with the fact that she was not born in a Western culture, but certainly... Uh, her view of the world uh, was evident in everything she did. There's a kind of prismatic, uh, almost shard-like qualities, those spaces at the Maxi Center, um, those spaces that she uh, she crafted and sculpted and, and, and curves and, and voluminous shapes that, that are also sexy and, and larger than life. She, um, I mean, Julie says, you know, what architect isn't a diva? <laughs> like, why are we talking about that? Let's talk about the fact that she was just a prolific talent, uh, a prodigious, uh, brilliant person in so many ways. And it is a great loss uh, for architecture and for, for everybody, really. Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. Our website is designobserver.com. There you'll find links to things we discussed, including images from PhotoViz by Nicholas Felton. Between episodes, keep up with Design Observer on Facebook and on Twitter. You can subscribe to the Observatory on iTunes, SoundCloud, or however you take your podcasts. Go to designobserver.com slash the observatory. That's designobserver.com slash the observatory. And if you're not listening already, please tune in to our other podcast, Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Our thanks to the School of Visual Arts for sponsoring this episode of The Observatory. Teddy Blanks wrote our theme music. Our producer is Blake Eskin. Talk to you soon, Michael. Thanks, Jessica. Talk to you soon.